Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Maud Moran, who is a defense lawyer in New York City, and she's also worked on school boards there and is now running for city council on the platform of sanity and common sense. How she got on my radar is that in June of last year, a Zoom meeting surfaced of a school board meeting where the adults <laughs> experienced like this major intersectional meltdown on the level of Evergreen, except they were all doing it via Zoom and were all adults. I'll link a couple of clips to that just so you can get a flavor for what happened. But if you want to know more, I did a couple videos on that last year, and I will link those in the description. In this conversation, we talk about the New York education system, the public education system, and its abject failures, and what might be necessary to turn that around. Maud is a very well put together common sense individual. And if you are in New York and are in the first district, I would highly recommend that you listen to this interview and see if you want to vote for her, because it seems that New York City could use someone of her point of view and skill set. So without further ado, oh, I have to show you those clips, don't I? After the clips, there's Maude Moran, so I'm sorry for what you're about to witness. Here we go. It hurts people when they see a white man bouncing a brown baby on their lap, and they don't know the context. That is harmful. You think I'm a social justice warrior, and you think I'm being patronizing, and I'm getting pressure for not being enough of an advocate. And I take that to heart, and that hurts me. And I have to learn to make how to be a better white person. Do you, did you read Ibram Kendi? Did you read How to Be an Anti-Racist? That does not make There's, me racist for not reading that I'm book. I'm not Rocky. calling you racist. I'm saying you just that, did. Point, no, I'm saying that was racist oh, behavior. All white people, all people are capable of racist behavior. And we should apologize when we okay. offend people of color, when they get upset, when they say this is a harmful space, when they log out of a meeting immediately because they see white people exhibiting their power over people of color. When did you stumble into the political arena? Was it just kind of by happenstance? You just wanted to help out with your uh, with the school district and... I mean, I've always been sort of um, interested in politics and the, you know, people who know me super well weren't totally surprised that I decided to run for city council. But the sort of odd moment where um, I guess I would trade that I got known to a somewhat wider audience <laughs> was when one of my school board meetings went viral. <laughs> and um, thankfully, it wasn't my behavior that made us go viral. Um, but that's certainly when you probably saw my face or heard my name for the first time. Yeah, that was an epic <laughs> cultural moment. <laughs> it really showcased, it encapsulated, um, I guess, upper middle class 2020 uh, attitudes in this really intense exchange. It encapsulated everything that's wrong with anti-racist education filtered through the lens of spoiled, privileged white people who are preaching at their peers and incurring absolutely no downside to the shit policies that they're recommending ravage public school education. Mm. What's happened between then and now 
is I'm no longer pussyfooting around the truth. <laughs> no, I'm oh, just really? going to say it um, plainly because people who know and not just in education and all sorts of other arenas, all the things that are going wrong have such strong disincentives not to talk about it in plain and simple ways. And I think it's really bad for our, certainly for our schools and our kids and school communities, but also for, not to sound dramatic, but like for our democracy more broadly. I tend to agree with that assessment. Were you, did you, were you always aware that these policies that go under the banner of anti-oppression or anti-racism or CRT, depending on who you're talking to. Were you always aware that there's something a little bit off about them or was that a gradual realization for you? Um, definitely gradual. I don't know. It's, you know, I, oddly enough, when I was in law school, I had a tech, I had the classic textbook called critical race theory. I read a few chat, I read whatever was assigned to me, showed up, answered what, I, you know, participated in whatever class discussion was and really never much thought about it again. After that, I went to work as a public defender um, there's certainly real racism in state courts and policy, you know, broadly and in terms of the actual day-to-day -day existence of um, your clients. Um, so knowing there's real racism and other awful isms in the world is, you know, didn't come as a big surprise to me. But seeing it, um, seeing anti-racism, the Ibram Kendi-defined version of it in our schools, um, yeah, when I first when I first decided to run for for our school board, our local school board in New York, I don't think I don't even know if I'd heard of Ibram Kendi or had yet read White Fragility. You certainly already knew the groundworks of like what you were supposed to say and not say out loud in mm. terms of um, policy. But for the most part, it, you know, my kids were young when I decided to run. I mean, they're still young, but they're <laughs> I have teenagers now. I didn't then. Um, my kids were all in elementary school when I decided to run for the school board. And in many ways, lots of families are sort of insulated in the elementary school. We have a very good school. We had lovely teachers. I respect the principal. So even though if I had scratched the surface more at the time, you would have seen some of the, the misguided policies, hmm. um, at the time, as a parent in the school system, I was relatively insulated from the the downside and the downstream effect of such bad, uh, of the series of bad policy decisions that have escalated and really come out into the open in the last few years, trying to get rid of merit-based programs, gifted and talented programs, accelerated math programs, pretending that tests are, are racist, or hiring consultants to come in to pretend that things like punctuality and objectivity are part of a, a problematic white supremacy culture. I mean, it's so stupid that it's hard to talk about seriously, but it's also, you have to talk about it because it's impacting our kids' ability to get a decent education. Mm -hmm. So what year was that when you began? Uh, on I was board? on the, I ran, I was on the school board for the 2017 to 2019 term and then 2019 to 21, I just ended this June, June of this okay. year of 21, was the end of four years of serving on the school board. And those four years saw an incredible acceleration of the diversity, equity, inclusion, etc. ideology. Yes, but it didn't, it certainly didn't start in 2017, right? Like the groundwork for this stuff has been 
laid for a long time. It's been out there. It's been, it's been going on (laughs) sort of outside of the eyes of most parents for a really long time to the point where all of a sudden when you get a school curriculum that's saying that, you know, sex is not binary, that white supremacy culture is, you know, that you have, the kids need to talk about their, their privilege and all this stuff. And you think, what the hell is this? Like, what is going on in my, my kid's classroom? You know, teachers have been getting training from diversity and equity consultants with this kind of language and this kind of ethos for a long time. I mean, some of them, some of them have been, indoctrinated in it, and I use the word advisedly, um, since, Mm. you know, since, um, you know, they're getting in their master's programs, getting their master's of education. Yeah. So one aspect of going about dealing with this is exposure. Uh, How how effective has that been? And uh, have you been participating in that? Or is it, are you, are you watching it kind of expose itself? And are you seeing parents kind of wake up to what's going on? A hundred percent. It's definitely more exposed. Oddly enough, that viral school board meeting um, from my school council, I think that was was that 2020? Was that like yeah, 2019? Yeah, like June, I think. And it was 2020. It was in the middle of the lockdown. And oh, it was 2020. Oh, yeah. Totally it was, but you're right. You're right. Because Zoom had started because we hadn't been on Zoom before then. Mm-hmm. It feels so long ago in some ways, but it <laughs> yeah. was only really about a year ago. Um, yeah, in a way, that was a moment where I think you like I had served on a school board with that woman and her ilk right, with people who um, parroted all that language Hmm. for two years. And in fact, part of my running for the school board is because I saw the folks that were on the school board not being responsive to actually what parents wanted, you know, the concerns that parents had, because they were indulging in such an intense way in this language and this rhetoric. Hmm. Um, It's part of what probably, you know, I I had my desire to sort of make my voice heard in the in the school board, but I think that probably drove the decision a little bit, right? If, if Mm -hmm. I could go back to my 2016, 2017 head. Um, but well, yes and no, Benjamin, because it's like, you know, we live in our social media echo chambers. Mm -hmm. So I get a giant influx of stuff about CRT and gender ideology and school stuff and, and all of that. But um, you know, I, I would imagine that there are still, I'm sort of envious of the people that are blissfully unaware of all this nonsense yeah. <laughs> who have, you know, if you're living in a, I don't know, in a not intensely, um, you know, liberal state and you have a relatively good local school and your kids are happy and, and there's not, you know, and you don't have the money to bring in expensive diversity consultants to lecture you about white supremacy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're, you know, there have, I would imagine there, there are folks who are just, who are as of yet untouched by the madness, who would be sort of surprised to hear that any, any school district is spending millions of dollars to train mm-hmm. their teachers about white supremacy culture. Yeah. The New York Department of Education it's flouted as the biggest 
school district in America, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I, I mean, when I when my kids start, my eldest boy is now 15. When he started in school in, in the public school system in 2011, there were over, including charter school students, which account for about a hundred thousand, a little over a hundred thousand kids. There was over a million students in wow. in the school system. So enormous. I am every education reporter in New York City right now, and many parents are quite keen to get their hands on the actual enrollment numbers this year because there's been a tremendous drop. Really? Um, oh, yeah. Um, the, the, the New York City DOE has been releasing percentages. So they say these ridiculous things like 82% of students showed up for the first day, which, of course, is despicable because when you're talking, you're talking tens of thousands of kids who aren't coming when you have, a, a, you know, that many kids in a school district. But 82% of what? Like, we know that we've lost, um, I think the, the number that they put out last year was down to like 820,000. Um, so we've lost a tremendous number of kids last year, right? And now the question is, how many kids are actually enrolled in New York City public school? There's a thing called the register. It closes in the end of October where they give the, the, the individual schools, say, to the central DOE, how many kids are enrolled in that school, and then they get the funding per student locked in at the end of October. So then they really are going to have to <laughs> yeah. come up with a better lie or a better reason why they're saying, oh, the numbers are temporary or the numbers are this or that. But the thing that's in, that infuriates me as a public school parent is that as our schools have gotten worse and worse, they have mishandled COVID in the most anti-child, anti-scientific way. And that compounds all of the horrible decisions they've been making that are anti-academic using the, frankly, the excuse of anti-racist education to distract from and hide from their failures to actually educate kids, mm. particularly poor kids. Um, but that COVID um, interruption in the public school system has made this ridiculous situation where the schools have gotten worse and families are fleeing, but yet they're getting more and more money. <laughs> so the ability to expand and grow that administrative class that brings in all of these horrible ideas um, and needs to justify their own existence. Mm -hmm. um, the, the New York City public schools are fully funded for the first time. Um, there was a, a big lawsuit called the Campaign for Fiscal Equity um, many years ago complaining about the funding formula for city kids. Um, and and it's a long, complicated story. But the, the 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 end result is we're fully funded for the first time ever now, and we got all this federal money mm -hmm. because the teachers' unions were holding our kids' education hostage to their demands and got yeah. all of this okay. federal money. And so yeah. we have New York City has always had this huge amount of money per student. Um, I'm I'm sh I'm. I was I was just writing about it this morning. Depending on how many students we leave, we could be up to close to fifty thousand dollars per student, which is extraordinarily high. Uh, I mean, New York City, prior when we were close to forty thousand dollars per student, is twice the national average of per student funding for the country. Mm -hmm. So we have this tremendous amount of money per students, but yet, you know, fewer than half of 
New York City public school kids can read, write, or do math on grade level. So you're paying okay. a lot of money and not getting yeah. a, a really impressive return. So, yeah, the outcomes uh, are f- flagging, and it might just be a coincidence, but the anti-racism DIE programs um, do everything they can to delegitimize outcomes for the sake of making equal outcomes. So it's a perfect storm of um, incompetence or perfect virtue, depending on how you look at it. Uh, it's, it's hard to be honest um, and, and call it virtue, but that's how it's dressed up. Where are all the families going then? Are they moving out of state? Are they just going online? Is there homeschools popping up? Do we know? I don't know where everyone's going, but, you know, I don't know that there's any good data. Like I think the U.S. I saw someone looking at, you know, U.S. Postal Service change of address (laughs) to try Hmm. to track some of it. But anecdotally, among folks that I know, we have plenty of people moving to New Jersey, to Westchester, to upstate New York. People, you know, Um, I live in lower Manhattan. There are certainly families who have summer homes and extra homes. (laughs) So Mm. they moved, people moved out to Long Island for the year or to upstate New York where there's lots of second homes. And then people started moving to Florida. I know a woman who left my school system to move to Tennessee. I know people started moving. They were like, are the schools open? We're coming. (laughs) Like having your kids kept out of school um, older kids who need who for whom sports is a huge driver of their mental health and happiness. Younger kids who need to learn how to read. I mean, like across the board, people were just, you know, there was nothing. There was nothing on offer for kids in New York City for the last eighteen months. Yeah, I mean, sporadically. The other thing is there was a huge rise in. Um, uh, parochial school applications and private school applicant. You know, the one of the local. Um, girls high schools last year put out their acceptances and I know a family that went was like okay they were like debating where you know which school should they choose and then they called the Catholic high school that they decided was there they'd been offered a spot they they said oh like you're on the wait list now because more so many people you know school mm-hmm. they do a sort of yield management when they offer seats at any school because they know a certain number will decline and so they over offer for what they have um but some of the schools were, you know, they the, the spots were filling up faster than you can imagine because their doors were open, right? Charter school doors were open, parochial school doors were open. Most, not all, but most private schools did a much better job of in-person school. So some people didn't leave the city, but they left the school system. And then other people left the city. I mean, if you, <laughs> if you had owned property in Florida, um, it's, you know, it was a good time to sell property in Florida because the housing prices, like houses doubled in value in Florida over the last years with a ton of New Yorkers um, moving to Florida. Wow. Um, that makes me uh, assume that the those people, statistically speaking, who aren't withdrawing their children from education are those who don't have the resources to move or the resources to pay for education. And so the New York uh, City Department of Education is now more and more focusing or at least more and more uh, dealing with or or in charge of the lower income brackets. Um, And those kids are going to be getting a lot more money uh, if New York 
city education mm -hmm. can get its act together, but what steps need to be taken for the act to be getting to be gotten together? It's not the money. Like we know that at this point, I don't, I just think the money is, um, is almost meaningless. If you don't have the kid in the classroom and okay. if you don't say that learning how to read is as important as it gets, then there's nothing you can do. There's no consultant you can bring in. There's nothing, unless you say we will judge ourselves by our ability to make sure that these children are literate and kids who aren't reading on grade level at third grade, um, statistically, you can see it impacts high school graduation, right? Like you have less, you are less likely to graduate from high school if you're not reading on third grade on level at third grade than if you are. So it's not, there's no time to waste <laughs> for kids whose schools shut down and, in kindergarten or first grade who spent all of last year out of school and who are going back into school now with spotty, irregular um, access to education because sometimes they're closing down schools, although that might have just changed a little bit in New York City. They're, the other thing is like being a parent in New York City is hard now because the rules change constantly. Really? And last year for, oh yeah, last year with their hybrid model that our mayor, Bill de Blasio, acted like was some great thing. You'd get emails at like eight o'clock at night saying your kid's school was going to be closed down. You know, try being a single working parent and getting an email at eight o'clock at night saying no school tomorrow for the next 10 days because we did a test and some person had asymptomatic COVID. So we're closing down the whole school. It made no sense then. It makes no sense now. It's anti-child. It's anti-science. And, you know. What was the, could you encapsulate just why it was that they handled it so horribly or how they handled COVID so horribly oh. for those who aren't New York city residents. You know, I will, I will say this with the caveat <laughs> that I have been, I've been in unions my whole life in the, in, in my, I worked for the New York city parks department after college and I was in a union and I worked for the Legal Aid Society after law school, and I was in a union. And I've always been pro-labor, and I think I'd like to see, um, or, I, or before, watching the way my kids' teachers' unions behaved and continue to behave, I would have said to you, I'd like to see more robust labor <laughs> in the United States. Um, because having a strong middle class and having middle class jobs where people can live a decent life, I think is pretty important for a country. Um, but it's really hard to ignore the fact that um, blue states like California and New York, where unions are very, very powerful, provided the worst education for kids in the last 18 months. It's very cynical, but it's also just, it's like as obvious as the nose on your face. It's just true. So the unions were, well, as unions are, they're for the worker, they're for the teacher. So the teachers at least were served well, you think? If your goal was to never walk into the classroom, yeah, sure. Hmm. Great. But you know, I was, I worked as a public defender for years and was in a union, but our union even before I, you know, before I got there, when the union was formed, the union was fighting for um, changes in workplace conditions that would benefit our clients, right? And hmm. um, 
there was there was for public service employees i think there's a a, a belief that um, and certainly teachers unions have pushed this belief that you're fighting for your workers, of course, have good pay, have vacation time, have sick time, have things that directly benefit the workers, but also that you're fighting for a better school system for kids, right? A better public defense system for your clients that you have, that you're not doing things that are hmm. uniquely beneficial for you. And that like, well, to hell with the kids or to hell with the clients, like that's not what you know, a public sector union should be fighting for, right? In our notion, the shoulds, right? Mm -hmm. But this past year, it's really hard to see where everything that Michael Mulgrew, who's the local the union head of the New York City um, Teachers Union, or Randy Weingarten, who's the, you know, the national um, union boss, as it were, um, they have again and again and again pushed policies, supposedly for their, for their, teachers, um, for their teachers that are, that are to the detriment of kids, right? Like kids, mental health referrals to hospitals have gone up. Kids, obesity rates have gone up. Kids missing well visits appointments and not having other like important vaccinations, <laughs> um, is all a mm. consequence of this like insane fear mongering COVID policy. Right. Like teachers had access to this vaccine before a lot of old people, before a lot of folks with real risk factors. A 27 year old healthy teacher did not need to get the vaccine in January, but had it available because their union fought for it and got it for them. OK, fine. But there were old folks dying in January who should have been prioritized for the vaccine because we should protect the most vulnerable first, because that's a fair way to line people up for access to a limited resource hmm. and, you know, and teachers should have been in classrooms because we know and have known for a really long time that it was safe. So right. the teachers got access to the vaccines. They were pushed to the front of the line, but then they didn't turn around and with their vaccinated bodies get back to work. Is that what I'm hearing? Oh, look, to be fair, lots of teachers did work and they worked extra hard last year. Like the teachers in my kids elementary school, for instance, um, I saw them like work their butts off and it was hard because the directions and the directives from central, from the, you know, from the, the we call it tweed. Cause it's, it's, it's actually, you know, boss tweed, the famous corrupt democratic leader in New York city. He built this kind of palatial municipal building, which is sort of like an ode to, good old school New York City political corruption, that's where the DOE is housed. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It sort of fits perfectly. So we say like, oh, Tweed is, you know, giving conflicting information or we're waiting for direction from Tweed and it's yeah. the DOE. Um, and the teachers had to work really, really hard because, you know, they had kids in cohorts as they had to because of hybrid. And then Multiple times throughout the year, directions changed, and so teachers had to change the number of kids in a class and change what was going on. They worked incredibly hard. But there were other teachers who were, like, at their house in Vermont or in the Poconos, and it was like they gave out exemptions, you know, and like candy. Hmm. And so there were some people that preferred not to have to come into the classroom and not to – and it wasn't because it was impossible or unsafe. It was because they preferred it, and the unions fought for their teachers to have that right. No other 
you know, this was going on while emergency room doctors and the cashiers at Trader Joe's and the Amazon delivery people and the, you know, people who drive the subways and the buses were all just showing up and going to work. No one fought for them to have, you know, with the exception of the doctors who had priority access to the vaccines. If you were like Hmm. a 62 year old diabetic Hispanic man who worked at a grocery store, no one pushed you to the front of the line to get a vaccine even though you were probably much more at risk than the vast majority of a relatively young teacher mm-hmm. workforce. So I don't, I disrespect that decision. Um, I think it should have been a decision based on medical vulnerability, mm-hmm. which we know was age factors and other, you know, medical factors. And, um, and I'm kind of disgusted by the way in which there are people still arguing to reduce to keep kids out of classrooms. Okay. So at a bird's eye view, you have this, in, this tremendous system with tremendous amounts of resources. Just the, the public school sector has got tons of resources and infrastructure mm-hmm. and a bunch of problems in that. And it's got a bunch of inherited problems uh, from decades of running. Mm-hmm. And then you have the infiltration of diversity, equity, and inclusion, anti-racism going on. Then you have the teachers union going on. And then you have the administrative state going on, which kind of a, is a massive amount of problems. I could see, I could be sympathetic in a thought experiment kind of way for somebody to say, we should just blow this whole thing up and start from scratch and say, parents, you have to be responsible for your kids and start over because this whole system can't be fixed. Can it be fixed? You as somebody who wants to participate in this, Mm -hmm. it would seem that you would have the hope or some sort of optimism to even step into this ring. What's your thoughts on that? You know, I used to think that people who said things like who were I used to think it was sort of some right wing Republican talking point to talk about vouchers and some sort of terrible thing. But as we Hmm. as we head, as I said earlier, towards what I think is going to be close to fifty thousand dollars per student for this New York City spend for this really subpar education for most students. There are schools that are really good. I happen to think the schools my kids go to are good. Um, They could always be better. And there are things that have gotten worse during COVID. We lost our chess program. We lost longstanding programs that were great because we couldn't keep them. And I don't see them coming back, you Hmm. know, anytime soon. Mm -hmm. But the kids, you know, there are good schools, but not nearly enough good schools. There are a lot of really, really bad schools in our system. And at a certain point, I think, how can you justify 50,000 bucks per so we're not quite I don't know if that's quite the number but we're heading in that yeah, direction. Okay. Yeah. Um you know the like would more kids be better educated if parents had that money to spend and to access education themselves would would you know private schools and or public type charter more public charter schools crop up to meet the demands of parents? Um, and would that result in the long term and more kids getting a better education? Now I'd say a big fat maybe, and I wouldn't hmm. be at all disinclined to listen to people talk about how that might work. Whereas before, I always thought it was like people who wanted to destroy public education and people who, you know, 
sort of all the traditional Democratic talking points all made a lot of sense to me. And Mm -hmm. now I'm sort of like, you know, if you keep delivering such bad results for so much money and the, you know, it's like the customer service model of, of, um, you know, of the educate is really broken. Because you have, in what other universe do you have people fleeing a system, fleeing a product, fleeing something, and then they're like, oh, look, we're getting so much more money. <laughs> like, no, no normal business runs that way. No other system runs that way, right? Yeah. You yeah. don't fail and fail repeatedly and fail worse and get rewarded for it, except if you work for the New York City Department of Education. <laughs> so there's a couple other uh public sector jobs i'm sure we could point to um <laughs> i'm a little hyper focused on <laughs> no on but that, that's excellent so uh who's the leader of the doe right now is it the same guy misha Ka- porter okay so Ka- God, i don't want to mispronounce his name but the previous guy he he loved. richard carranza carranza so, no. yeah I wanted to showed say up and Costanza. started wagging his fingers at, um, yeah. you know, white parents and Asian parents. It was all our fault, all, all the problems in the school system. Yeah. And then he imported his girlfriend up here, stuck her on payroll, kept her here for two years, then left in the middle of a pandemic to get a job with a company that sells millions of dollars worth of contracts to the New York City DOE. Did nothing <laughs> positive the entire time he was here. That guy? That's who you're talking about? Goodness. It's amazing how people connect that way and the reputation's sterling. It's psychopathic. Uh, the system itself is psychopathic that that is allowed It, it to, was an yeah. ugly chapter in New York City public schools. And mm-hmm. um, I am really, really hopeful that our new mayor, Eric Adams, um, will appoint someone worthy of the position. Okay. It's an incredibly important position. It's, it is, as yeah. you pointed out, like the largest school system in the country. Um, and it should be, um, you know, it should be a jewel in the system of public education. We have so much money to spend and we have so much raw talent. (laughs) We have kids Hmm. and we have a beautifully diverse group of kids, right? The kid, the, we have children from in New York, in Queens alone, in the borough of Queens alone, there's more languages spoken, right? Than you know, than you're going to find in any other major city concentrated in one area, the culture, the languages, sort of the, the vibrancy of immigrant communities. We have mm-hmm. this like enormous potential to do so much for in New York City public schools, and we squander it in ways that, are, that mm-hmm. I think are really heartbreaking. So if, if maybe that will turn around if there's a reckoning, or do you think that iterative improvements, I mean, we're watching, we'll see the numbers uh, at the end of October if they release them or whenever the funding goes through. And if all the people in cahoots of funding are on the same side of covering the asses of those below, maybe it will (laughs) never come out. They do that up in Canada with certain programs. But if there is some sort of reckoning or does it, does there does there need to be some sort of wake up call? What is your strategy for turning this around? Well, <laughs> I am running for office, so yeah. um, but I'm running for office as a city council member. Um, you know where I'd be one voice among many. Um, but I think we have something called mayoral control in New York City. So the mayor appoints the chancellor um, yeah. and has. Um, mayoral control versus having our school system controlled by Albany, the state, you know, where the state government is for New York state. Um, 
So really, it's a lot in the hands of the mayor. Um, and I'm okay. hopeful there are certain things that Eric Adam agrees with, uh, with that I agree with his proposals. Um, it, it, a huge part of it is appointing the right chancellor. And then on a policy level, I think we need to put the brakes on um, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs that don't um, improve the academics of our schools and that are ultimately very divisive. I don't think, you know, it's the start of the school year. I was looking at my son's, um, uh, this high school essay that he had to write coming in. (laughs) And it's like, I want to give my kids their privacy and not, you know, put their information out there. But it was all about like, asking them questions about sort of their identity on these different scales and things. And I don't think any child anywhere, any high school kid needs to be telling their high school teacher, whether they're straight or not, like Hmm. who that's just not your business. And it's not what, you know, that's not what I'm sending my kids to, to school to learn about. It's not, you know, and there might, of course we should have some social workers in schools. And of course there will be kids in, with real trauma that need, um, you know, intervention. But most kids are not showing up at school traumatized in need of therapy. They need to learn how to read, write, and do math. And I think there's an over, an extraordinary overreach and a real ideological indoctrination going on. And so mm-hmm. I think on the policy front is let's refocus on academics and let's be really um, unrelentingly rigorous about measuring it enough with the nonsense that like tests are racist or that black kids can't take tests. Kids of every color can take tests. There's nothing white about taking a math test. Um, particularly not in a system where the Asian kids are kicking everyone else's butt. So like, it's not white supremacy, right? If you want to maybe call it Asian supremacy, go ahead. But no, they're like, just super whites. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The white adjacent class. It's so stupid and it's yeah. so disrespectful to children who need an education from our country, mm-hmm. um, because they're going to be in a global world in terms of competing for jobs. Even if you're, you know, even if high school is the highest level of education you ever achieve, if you wind up working, you know, if y- the jobs that you do in a, like a phone, you know, data center, there are people who in other countries can do that job well too. You know, you have to, um, mm-hmm. uh, you have to be well educated, and it's just it's. It's gross not to not to acknowledge that that kids who are adolescents who can talk about, you know, cis heteronormative patriarchal blah, 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 but who can't do math on a seventh grade level. You're going to congratulate yourself for that. Like, how dare you undereducate children that phenomenally while pushing your ideological agenda? So policy wise, I'm looking for like a deep focus on high quality academics, more kids need to graduate from high school, more kids need to read and write on grade level starting early. Um, it's crucial to start early and to stop fixating on, on like, don't bean count kids by skin color. There's a real obsession with how many black kids are going to get into Stuyvesant next year. All people would like to see more kids, um, black students, get into a really hard high school that you have to get in by taking a test. But I want to see all kids <laughs> be so well-educated that they can take that test and do well on it. 
that's the goal. It's not just the the mm -hmm. sort of musical chairs version of like, let's change how we get kids into the school so we can so politicians can yell success um, because that's cheating right. kids. You have to educate kids so that they can compete on this in a high school entrance exam, but also in life, because once they leave high school, yeah. you know, they have to um, as high school degrees and as other degrees become less meaningful, right? Because if they're not really measuring competency, um, employers are just going to give tests, right? Like you already certainly big consultant groups and stuff do their own screening for people coming in. You can't just wave your diplomas and, and be, you know, be assumed to be competent. Mm -hmm. um, and that's going to be even more and more. You're going to see it at every level with employers. Yeah. Because if you have a high school degree, that doesn't mean much. We have a school here in New York City where the principal was just fired because um, of this grade fraud scandal, because no kid could fail in that school. You could show up for five minutes and you passed. Um, it's a school in Maspeth that, uh, you know, ha oh, I forget the language that they use, but there was like a... I don't know. There was some funny language that they used about it, but basically, it was impossible to fail. Like, and they had, and it was a school that got sterling reviews and remarks because it was like, oh, the kids do so well, and the teachers. But eventually, there was sort of a whistleblower who said, like, yeah. a teacher who was like, I'm being forced to pass kids that I've never seen in my class, you know, and they come in for five minutes, and I'm supposed to design some sort of, you know, extra credit program. They take it, you know, and then I pass them. That degree is meaningless for those kids, um, and employers will figure it out, and then, yeah. Yeah. you know. So the bubble will burst, and um, and again, that goes back to just the amount of wasted resources and um, empty suits uh, orchestrating the whole thing uh, to get their kudos. You, um, you had a, a duke out. This is a little gossipy, but I thought it was really funny <laughs> when you and Nick, uh, Hannah Nicole Jones came after you. That was a while ago, though, uh, about a year ago or yeah. something like that. Have you um, received uh, much, much pushback in, in terms of your public stance? And you don't seem terribly Republican. I don't really hear much Limbaugh in your <laughs> thought processes. Uh, you seem pretty blue yourself, um, and yet yeah, you're kind I've of stepping up. I've been a Democrat my whole life, and yeah. I've... Um, I'm just very frustrated with the look. I think the Democratic Party is sort of led by the New York Times and the Nicole Hannah Jones segment of the New York Times is ascendant and sort of unchallengeable at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, she had asked me to do an interview um, for, a, for a, a program called The Weekly that the New York Times was doing. And this is when Chancellor Carranza was here and when he was moving. Here, and I, I went and testified at a city council hearing. And one of the things I said is, I don't think um, New York City school parents who disagree with the chancellor should have to be called racist all the time. <laughs> and when she reached out to me and wanted to, to interview me for this program that, that she and another education reporter were doing, um, she said that, that she thought, I, she told me that she thought I was, that I said out loud um, something that many parents thought but weren't saying. <laughs> and so that's why she wanted to interview mm -hmm. me. Um, and, you know, I think she's a reporter at the end of the day. She had some sort of nose for news, as many reporters do. And I think she was right about that. I think um, I have been willing to say in sometimes things that other folks are thinking but won't say out loud. Um, 
And I understand why people don't want to say things out loud about race, about education, about gender, because there's a huge price to pay um, for doing so. Uh, and, you know, and after I did that interview, there was some online push, people, people calling me racist because that's what people do if you say anything other than the, the sort of Nicole Hannah-Jones, New York Times, 1619 lines, you know, the, the, the talking points these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is, you know, someone else who's been through something similar said to me that um, the community of the canceled was one of the greatest unexpected gifts that she had received, you know, over the last year. And I loved the phrase. Um, and it spoke to me very directly because there's a lot of really good people out there standing up for what's right, speaking the simple truths out loud, particularly around defending kids. Um, mm. it, improving education is huge. The, keeping gender ideology out of our kids' schools and classrooms is something that I think is, it's like the kissing cousin of CRT. It's sort of mm. all wrapped mm-hmm. up in there. And, um, yeah, I think that there's a reason why I'm I'm talking to you on this podcast and not not being re-interviewed by the New York Times. <laughs> uh, we won't talk about my relative standing to the gray lady, <laughs> but I guess it's out there for all to ponder now. <laughs> so you've been um, have you received much? pushback uh, pushback or attacks or whatever negative uh, negative input to support how how's your support been have have well, people sort of interesting been kind of whispering I'll tell you that um yeah. you know i've i've been outspoken about education issues yeah. and i wrote last summer an op-ed um about anti-racism in schools and my employer wrote this bizarre and skim my union and my employer wrote these um scathing public replies and sort of condemnations of me um and that has actually led to a lawsuit i am suing um my my former employer and um you know barry weiss speaking of former new york times reporters wrote an article about it and i went on her podcast and I had a huge amount of response from people um, based on her reporting, mm-hmm. um, and it was so overwhelmingly positive. There's always a, the sort of nasty haters, the people encouraging you to kill yourself are always out there and somehow find your email. But, yeah. um, but the response was so positive, and, and just again and again and again, I heard from people saying, I agree with you completely. I could never say it at work or I don't speak up in my, you know, in my community or I don't think, but I, you know, I think it's brave of you to do so. And that, when I hear those things, it always kind of breaks my heart because, you know, um, I don't know, my generation of Americans, I think has this maybe naive notion that like, that we are an exceptional country in many ways. And I think we are, right? Mm. That the, the the First Amendment rights that are now bizarrely being questioned by many on the left um, make our country very special and unique. And there's a reason why so many people the world over are trying to get here, right? There's um, the special sauce that makes us who we are, mm-hmm. <laughs> despite all of our endless white supremacy culture. As, as articulated by the New York Times and NPR and every other mm-hmm. left-wing media outlet these days. Um, 
still attracts a whole lot of non-white people to our shores. (laughs) Some white folks too, but you know, it's like, it's mostly non-white people trying to come to this country and build a great life because you can. And it, um, and so the response I've gotten has been hugely, um, positive and it gives me a lot of hope (laughs) because I think there are more people looking for ways to speak up the, the, the upside in some ways of, I think it's terrible when people can't meet in person but all of these school boards going virtual and having regular everyday citizens from states all across the union speak up. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes when you get someone really feisty or really eloquent or both, you know, it kind of goes viral <laughs> in social media. And you can see and hear other parents who you would never in a million years have heard from yeah. saying things. And you realize, oh, there is a community of parents who think and feel like me and who want more yeah. and better for their kids. And, yeah. and who want um, less uh, brown babies on white men's lap in yeah. the middle of a... The end, if you follow... The, the stupidity to the end of the line, you get that, right? You get someone freaking out over a white man holding a black baby or a brown baby on, on their lap, the stupidity of it. Yeah. Um, and the moral bankruptness of that kind of thinking, hmm. um, you know, is really on display. There's something that you said in brief that I think... I need to repeat because it's really important. You said that our generation, I think we're probably both Gen X. Um, we, it's like we, uh, we take for granted democracy and first amendment rights and, um, all these rights that we have and all these privileges that we have. And we are unaware of how fragile that is. If we do not utilize our right to speak. And so people like you and other people that I interview um, that are speaking up time and again, they're, you know, they speak up and then a lot of people come and whisper, I'm on your side. I just can't say anything. (laughs) If, if people, if people didn't act that way and, and took one for the greater team, which would be team America. Mm -hmm. um, Fuck. Yeah. um, (laughs) It, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be in the place we are now and we won't be in the place where we are headed if people speak up, if more and more people speak up. Um, yes. And I have days where I think, you know, people are coming out of the woodwork and people are speaking up and everything that's great. And there are other days where I think like, Oh my God, the military is going woke. Like what the hell is <laughs> happening? Right. Like there, you, there, you can ping pong back and forth between like, mm-hmm. Oh my God, my country circling down the drain and like, Oh yes. The great reasonable middle-class, you know, middle America mm. voices will come to the fore and write this ship and like put it back to um, an even keel. Um, and I certainly root for that. (laughs) I root for us getting Mm -hmm. our, you know, our house in order. Um, but it's going to take work because there are, you know, there are folks in charge at a lot of institutions who they're the true believers, right? They're people, it's almost cult-like and bizarre, but then there are the people for whom it's the, you know, diversity industrial complex. It's like, there are the people who, have made millions and millions of dollars peddling lies about the country and it's in there and, Hmm. and, and going into institutions to drum up racism that doesn't even exist there, but they need it to exist to sell their product. Um, and that's a sort of like pernicious, ugly cycle that you can see in places. Um, 
and it preys on people's goodwill, right? Because there is real racism in the world. There's real homophobia and anti-Semitism. And so people who want to bring in a program to root that out of a workplace, well, who, you know, who's going to disagree with that? Who wants to be in a workplace that's homophobic and racist and anti-Semitic? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you have uh, people who are selling products that at the end of the day, I think, are actually have become toxic. Mm-hmm. Maybe the original DEI programs or the original notion was beneficial or or well-meaning. But at this point, I think it's doing more harm than good. And I also don't think you go into nursery school to teach. To, you can't. The younger you start telling children to obsess about their peers skin color is just absurd we actually have moved to the beyond that point where kids of all different colors can be in classrooms together and you know of course ultimately you want to teach kids about the civil rights movement and about you know Mm. the the whole history of our country and slavery of course needs to be taught but not as some unique american phenomena as the worldwide slave trade and the way slavery has worked all over and of course the way slavery worked in america but contextualizing it and understanding it and understanding what, you know, where America is now can't be through this relentless lens of, um, of like country hatred and sort of like weird watered down fast food style Marxism, right? It's Mm. like this Mm. America does have a way, a uniquely American way of making (laughs) everything, um, (laughs) you know, one size fits all. Yeah. yeah, one size fits all. Manage it, easy to sell, easy to package. And yeah. now we've got this sort of like cheap Marxism. That not that I'm interested in the like the elaborate fancy Marxism, but like <laughs> this kind of like this pathetic. You can package it up in some corporate DEI program of like oppressed and oppressor and sell it to elementary school kids. Mm-hmm. And it's bad and it's negative and it's not helping kids at all. Mm-hmm. So. Who can vote for you and when? <laughs> um, anyone who lives in City Council District 1 in Lower Manhattan. Oh, you're number one. Number one, of course. Um, Lower Manhattan. So we are, it's a pretty fascinating district, I have to say. It includes um, the Lower East Side, Chinatown, Battery Park City, the South Street Seaport, Tribeca, Soho, a little sliver of the West Village. So like really diverse neighborhoods. Um, socioeconomically diverse, racially diverse, linguistically diverse, really interesting, sort of wonderful district. Um, and the general election is on November 2nd. I'm running as an independent, right? I ran in the primary. Mm. I did not win the Democratic primary. Okay. There were nine of us running for that seat. Um, and it's really hard to do a third party run in most places in this country. Um, mm. Manhattan's a very Democratic city save a few there's like there's like the republican guy in staten island (laughs) and occasionally a republican somewhere else but mostly it's we send democrats to elected office in manhattan um and i am a registered democrat but i'm running as an independent because i think there's a lot of um people who are frustrated what's that there's a lot of line towing in the party yeah, look, our, we just got a new governor, right, of the state, Kathy Hochul, who's our first female governor, replaced Andrew Cuomo when he stepped down in a sort of Me Too scandal. Um, and one of the first things she's done, I mean, a series of bad decisions around COVID that are that are not um, 
they're not steeped in smart public health science. And one of the things she's done is is demand that we mask toddlers. So there's been like a couple of videos going around of like two year olds being masked. And what do you think two year olds do when you smush a mask on their face? They cry and they try to pull it off. And then the daycare workers are trying to put it back on because they're trying. It's so stupid. I'm like, this is what the 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 Democratic state leader is doing in September 2021 is putting masks on two-year-olds. We have the Emmys and the, the VMAs and these uh, like ridiculous award shows and the Met Gala with, you know, AOC and her tax the rich dress and all the, none of these people, none of the attendees are wearing masks, right? The servant class that flutters mm-hmm. around them are all wearing masks, mm-hmm. but that we're not wearing masks anymore except for kids, right? My kids are in masks all day long at school. I don't mm-hmm. have any toddlers at this point. My youngest is five. But it's gross. It's just so hypocritical and it's so disappointing. And it's like the mask issue for me has become this weird tribal political thing. You Hmm. saw the same thing with the vaccines. I remember Kamala Harris saying she wasn't going to take a vaccine that the Trump administration came up with. Well, we all took the vaccine the Trump administration came up with because that's the one that <laughs> that hit the ground and was ready to go, you know? It was so irresponsible to have all these people talking about seeding doubt about the vaccine when Donald Trump was the president and now being relentlessly shaming people who have doubts. There's Americans who don't want to, I'm vaccinated, my, my teenage kids are vaccinated, my husband's vaccinated. Although I don't really think kids need to be vaccinated, but you know, you have to make those when your kids become teenagers, you have to make the decisions in conjunction with your kids and your mm-hmm. husband. He gets a vote too, <laughs> but I don't, so on something, not everything, but on something he gets a vote. It's a semi-democratic household you're yeah, running. Yeah, semi-democratic, Semi. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, I don't think they—they they just came out with the or their the the data, the initial data for for the, the vaccine for younger kids is coming out. It's all bizarrely tribal and political at this point um, yeah, in a way that yeah. public health should not be. Yeah. Um, and you think running an independent platform might just give people of a chance to kind of step outside of the party I line. would love to have the opportunity to vote for credible independent candidates in all the elections I vote in. I mean, I'll vote in my own, but... Um, Mm -hmm. I would love that right now. I think, I don't know that in in America more broadly or largely, we're going to have a credible third party option anytime soon. It's never really worked before. Um, well, the wigs got taken out at one point, but that was was some decades ago. (laughs) Um, Ross Perot is the, um, (laughs) the most significant third party candidate that I ever remember paying attention to. Not that I was a Ross Perot fan, but, you know, um, I just don't see that being the way forward. But I do think there's likely to be um, some realignment of a lot of different voters. Either I'm a complete outlier as a Demo- lifelong Democrat and left-leaning mm-hmm. Democrat in Manhattan, or which I don't think I am because I don't think I'm that unique in my, <laughs> in my political thoughts and behaviors, mm-hmm. or I'm indicative of things that are going on more broadly around the country with deep frustration with the hypocrisy of leadership, mm-hmm. especially in blue states that say, mask your toddlers, mask your children, you don't get after school sports, you have to show personal medical information to eat a cheeseburger. 
Oh, but by the way, we're going to go to night, you know, London breed dancing in the nightclub, Gavin Newsom in, um, you know, uh, French laundry and an endless lonely laundry list of New York city politicians like AOC at the Met Gala and, you know, Mm-hmm. and others um doing a like do as i say not as i do routine mm-hmm. which is which is bad enough when they're doing it to you but i can just take my mask off it's ridiculous it, when they do it to your kids yeah. it's the part that i really don't forgive okay so aside from um being a potential upset candidate in the new york uh political system what else uh do you have anything else on the books are you uh uh writing books do you have any uh pretensions towards media creation or uh do you have a, another <laughs> no pretensions kind of... at all i'm a very not pretentious person <laughs> 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 um the book thing has been suggested to me i don't know if i'm inclined mm. to write a book or not but um you know, November 2nd is six weeks away, and I am working constantly okay. on that election, yeah. so I'm going to focus Great. on it. I'm going to do it. Yeah. And then I start, you know, I started running for this city council seat in 2019, so win, lose, or draw, I'm so looking forward to November 3rd when I'm not running for anything. Oh. Huh. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm just going to take a big breath. We're going to, we'll be in Argentina over Christmas. My husband's from Argentina. So we'll go, we'll take the kids to see their grandparents. Um, We haven't had, my husband's been, and some of the kids have been, but we haven't had a full family trip um, in a really long time because of COVID. Yeah. Um, And so I'm going to go have a nice Christmas um, at the end of the year. And And it's summer down there. Yeah. That took me a little while to get used to like shorts and fireworks for Christmas is always like, (laughs) didn't quite seem right. Um, but it's lovely. And so we'll have like a family trip and then I'll figure it out. I am currently suing my former employer. So my plan had always been to run for city council and I may win, I may lose. If I lose, I go back to a job that I love and that I'm good Mm. at and that, was mm-hmm. waiting for me because I was on sabbatical. Um, that's not an option anymore. <laughs> so because you because you spoke your principles, you stuck to your principles publicly. Yeah, if you read, basically. I don't encourage anyone to read it, but if you read the lunatic response that they wrote to a six hundred word op ed that I wrote about my experience as a public school parent, right? I didn't even write about my job or even mention my job. I wrote about you know a training that I went to at the Department of Education that was intensely ideological and really. I thought rather gross. And I wrote, if you read what I, most Americans, if you read the op-ed that I wrote would just say, I agree with this woman a hundred percent, but my, a radical contingent in my office decided instead to tar and feather me, you know, in a four page screed. And then my employer said, you know, yeah, (laughs) we agree. She's awful. She's horrible. And she can't do her job because she's a white woman who, um, holds these views, she can't represent black and brown clients, which make up a very large percentage of, of indigent, you know, public defense clients. It was such a bizarre and strange way to engage in what I think are really important conversations. How do we improve our public school system? Which I think is the sort of thing that normal adults can talk about in reasonable ways 
even if you disagree. (laughs) So I have, so I don't know, Benjamin, if I figure it out, I'll let you know. If you have any suggestions, let me know. What should I do with the rest of my life? (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I don't know. I, I just, that, that meeting that I saw with you and, and how that, it was just, I don't know if you know my story, but I, I went to this college that did the same thing, but on a massive scale for a week. And uh, just watching you, every once in a while, the camera would cut to you, and you were just, you weren't responding at all. But I know the look on your face of uh, being a bus driver, you know, like these these people are, all these kids are absolute idiots, but we'll get to our destination, and and then I can, and then I can actually have a response off camera. But it was so- you were I so have, composed. I tried really hard. Um, I took that role seriously in that I tried to make it a council where people with different points of view could come and be heard. Um, it was sort of herding cats at a certain point, and then mm-hmm. it was just refereeing sort of open warfare at another point. Um <laughs> I've watched the Evergreen series on YouTube um, several times, and because I showed it oh. to my kids, and I oh. and it did they oh, get yeah. inoculated or indoctrinated? How did they break with the uh, exposure? I think I don't like knock on wood, but I think I've I'm leaning towards inoculation pretty well with them. They're not all mm. on you know on the same page, um, but. There's one scene in particular, I don't know if it's in like part three or something, where there are these like academic demands and there's some student who's saying like, and we want, like, I don't know what the, it was like, you know, more time to hand in our work or more time to, you know, something mm-hmm. about grades and sort of, and one of my kids looked at me and they're like, wait, what? Because I made them watch the whole gosh darn thing and they're all these, and they're like, wait, what? They just want easier schoolwork? <laughs> like, that's what this is about, you know? <laughs> and gumbo. Um, yeah, when you cut right down to it, it's like, what is the actual thing you want? This, when yeah. you get past all the crazy rhetoric about racism and about bodies being hurt and the violence of words and all this extreme angsty drama, like, mm-hmm. what's the thing you want? What's actionable here? What can we do? Assuming that everything you say is right, what's the thing we can do to make this a better environment, right? And it's like, wait, you want more time to hand in a homework assignment? Like, what are you talking about? This is, you know, it's kind of, um, Hmm. it's not that that's the only thing that in fairness, I don't want to straw man their arguments, like in Hmm. fairness, they, they, they would articulate things differently. But at the end of the day, what are the really actionable items? Firing people whose thoughts you don't agree with? Okay, there's good reason not to do that. But like, okay, let's say we do that. We fire the people whose thoughts you don't like. Um, we give you, we make school much easier for you. And so that it's hard to fail or hard to, you know, get anything wrong. Like Mm -hmm. what, that's it. Like, what is your, you know, at the end of the day, Mm um, I don't know. Motivation. Now that you have so many years being removed from it, do you, do you think differently about it than when you first came out of it? Um, I think, uh, well, I've had a lot of time to process it. And I spent a lot of time on it. And when I came out of it right away, I was uh, shaking off. I wasn't indoctrinated myself. It didn't really stick to me for a number of different reasons, but the, the amount of speech codes and the amount of guardrails by the time after four years of being there, it was, I was on such a narrow track and like I had to kind of 
break those, break those, break those, break those. And Mm -hmm. then eventually I realized that the way that this stuff operates is by shutting down discourse. Basically it shuts down thinking, but it also just shuts down talking. And so the best way to fight against it is to speak about it and to provide people a place where they can relax while they speak Mm -hmm. about these things. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the reality of people's common sense making is a powerful force if it's given the space to -hmm. do that. And these situations at the Evergreen State College and other situations, such as that council meeting, people had been shut into, for whatever reason, that group had been shut down into not being able to think outside of a very certain narrow way of doing it. And then that channeled all of their emotions in a very inarticulate way. Uh, mm-hmm. in, a, in a very, like, it, it regresses people. You know, yeah. I, I'd spent 15 years in preschool uh, mm-hmm. trying to teach kids to become adults, and then I go to a college, and I watch the college turn these adults into children by the end. Right. Right. It's so It's so <laughs> obvious, so you kind of just, uh, you kind of just, the proof's in the pudding, and so if we're going to be adults about this, we kind of have to act like it. Um, oh, that's very interesting. Helping preschoolers become adults, and then taking young adults and coddling them preschool style. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think you're really right about the idea that it shuts down discourse. And the, the, the unsubtle, big bludgeon way of doing it is be careful what you say, or we'll call you racist or transphobic or, you know, some other, um, you know, we'll make, we'll put your job in jeopardy. We'll publicly shame you in your community, that kind of thing. And then some of it is people don't, and some, and that works super well. Like it keeps certain many people in check and it keeps many people quiet. Um, Mm -hmm. But then of course there's also just like some people don't want to engage in a fight. Like uh, that's, Mm -hmm. there are people who are like, I'm leaving the public school system. Just like, I've always wanted my kids in public school. I was happy with it, but like, I don't want to fight this fight to have my kid go to a decent high school. Like it's not where I, I have better things to do with my time. It's not that yeah. I don't, I know what I think is right and I'll say it, but like, I don't want to be a, a culture warrior an ideology yeah. warrior. I, I want to do yeah. my job and live my life and, you know, yeah. take a vacation now and then and send my kid to a decent school. I see people just saying like, Ugh, like way more trouble than it's worth. Who wants to go to all these meetings and listen to people like my former board members tear their hair out somewhat inarticulately over mm-hmm. over bad books <laughs> right <laughs> and then baby bouncing <laughs> yeah well, Maud, I, you're, you are an inspiration, and I'm glad that you, um, you're much more than just a director of uh, a school board meeting, um, <laughs> that you're actually, uh, you're speaking out and taking risks, and also running. You're, uh, you're also trying to participate in the political process, which is, it's very admirable. I don't have the tenacity and the patience to do what you're doing, so it's great to know that somebody like you is there. We need more people that are sane and who understand that we need our discourse and our political world to open up more and not be shut down to run for mm-hmm. office. I'm doing mm-hmm. my bit now. Not sure that not sure that there's anything next chapter. Maybe, maybe not. But um, mm-hmm. but I want to see more people. I've seen so many newly engaged people around keeping our schools open. A lot of moms, dads too, but a whole lot of moms yeah. who were 
not remotely politically engaged before and who are now tagging every elected official in their tweets and who are really like fighting because you're fighting for your kids. And I think for me, and I hope this is a movement that can last a little bit, like fighting for your kids comes before for me, it comes before party loyalty and it comes before like the political tribalism, which for me had always been pretty, a pretty easy resting space, like lefty Democrat, right? Like it was, you know, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. but what's going on with, with kids and school, um, you know, you can either accept it or you can fight against it. And I think there are a lot of parents fighting against it, not just keeping the kids. It's fighting to keep our kids, our schools open, meaningfully open to have, um, you know, sitting quietly at lunch, looking forward and not being allowed to talk to each other is not acceptable, right? No adults are doing that anywhere. Is that the rule? Yes. In lots of schools, they have um, social distancing in the cafeterias and the classrooms. They have kids eating outside. There's different schools are are following guidelines differently, but there's some really bad practices. Mm-hmm. Um, so fighting to keep our kids' school open, and then fighting to make sure that what's coming into our schools and being taught is appropriate, and then fighting to make sure that our kids more broadly aren't being indoctrinated into ideologies that are hurting them or bad for them. I mean, it's really about mm-hmm. you know about making sure the next generation of kids are safe and are are being raised. Um, like with all the benefits that I was raised with and, you know, yeah, yeah. so there's that. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.